Today's reading is from Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. This is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Uh, well, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is David Ingle. Um, I'm an Anglican clergyman, but I uh, now as my day job um, am leading a charity that makes uh, Christian teaching films. Uh, shameless plug, uh, Deuteronomy Wellness God's Way launching the 30th of May on burningheart.org. Um, and, uh, but I'm part of this congregation. Uh, this is where me and my family, uh, Liz and our little daughter Beatrice, worship uh, and are part of Chanctonbury. So it's a real joy for me to be sharing with you guys this morning. I'm afraid we've defected to the 9am service because it works better with Beatrice's um, nap times at the moment. But uh, this, this, was, this was our... Sorry, excuse me. <coughs> This was our service for a long time. Um, and I want to just start a little bit differently, actually. I, I want to pray. I just want to ask you to maybe just close your eyes and pray with me. Because I, I just felt one of the things the Lord was doing with me a moment ago was just reminding me afresh of the beauties of his grace, of the riches of what he's given me. And I just feel that, that he wants me to start preaching in that place. So, Lord Jesus, I just pray, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Would you make known, not just to me, but to all of us afresh, the glories and the wonders of your grace. Come Holy Spirit. And Lord, would you make my voice work as well. Amen. I had a bit of a cold. Every once in a while, you read a book where just the title grabs you by the shoulders and shakes you. And a few years ago, I came across this book, which certainly had that impact on me. It's called I Love Idi Amin by Bishop Festo Kivengri. And from the laughs, I'm guessing that most of you are aware that Idi Amin was a brutal and homicidal dictator who ruled and ruined, to some degree, uh, Uganda in the 1970s. And you'd guess from the title of that book that Bishop Festo Kivengri was one of those rather uh, sort of disreputable characters who swapped um, principle for, for privilege and preferment by giving a little bit of legitimacy and being an apologist for a, a wicked and horrible regime. But you'd be wrong. Bishop Festo Kivengri was quite the opposite. A mighty man of God, an Anglican bishop, and a man who wrote this little book from exile. An exile that he'd been driven into after Idi Amin's thugs had tried to beat up his, or had beaten up his family, and tried on multiple occasions to arrest him. Just after he'd discovered that his great friend and leader, Janani Lewum, the Anglican Archbishop of Uganda, had become the first Anglican Archbishop in centuries to be murdered and martyred by a brutal regime. If anybody ever had cause to write the book, I hate Idi Amin then Festo Kivengri was that man. But that was not the book that he wrote. 
Instead, he wrote, I love Idi Amin, and he finishes the book by calling us, the readers, to love him too, and to pray for him that he might find God's salvation. Now, he did that. He wrote that book because he was a man of God, and more because he had read and deeply understood the Sermon on the Mount. The, the title, as many of you will have spotted, echoes a verse, a little bit of a spoiler alert, from next time's passage, when Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But the guts of, of what he was actually calling Kivengri to do and, and why he was responding with love to what Amin had done to him and his family and his friends comes in the explosive words that you've just heard read from our passage today. And I say that they are explosive, but I'm going to be honest, they're a bomb we often miss as it goes off. Because the Sermon on the Mount, it has this glorious and and well-earned reputation for being punchy, but lovely. And, And for most of what we read, what we're hit with is deeply challenging, but but nobody could object to it. Last time's passage, we're talking about how rather than just uh, hitting the, the lowest bar of don't murder, don't commit adultery and so on, we're also called not even to be angry, not even to, to, to lust. And, and we, we hear that, we all oh, ouch, and we wince, and we realise, wow, I've got a long way to go, that the holiness and righteousness that Jesus is calling me to is vast and, and beyond me, and I, I need God's help, and And yet nobody ever objected to that. And so we assume that that's the sort of the pattern of the Sermon on the Mount. And sitting here in the sunlit downlands of West Sussex, it's very easy to miss the offensiveness, actually, of what Jesus says in this passage. Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. And to hear the full force of those words, you need to take your your mind and thoughts elsewhere. Imagine saying that to someone in in Jesus' original context, a people who were under the brutal and repressive regime of the Roman Empire who had conquered and destroyed their nation. Imagine saying that to someone in Idi Amin's Uganda in the 1970s who just experienced that kind of persecution in their own life. And I'm not sure I've even got the guts and dare even mention speaking words like that in the context of Ukraine. I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Really? I mean, even actually within my own context, our own situations, when you dig a little under the surface, this begins to bite and be quite difficult to listen to. I mean, I've lost track of the number of conversations with friends or in pastoral situations that I've had with people where I've been talking about difficulties in relationships. So I've been talking about uh, somebody having a tough time at work, maybe because a colleague or a boss was treating them unfairly, because of some injustice at school, whatever it might be. And time and time again, I've heard people say, and I've even said it myself, well, of course... When we're thinking about how to respond, Jesus never called us to be a doormat. Now, I'm going to warn you all now, because the next time I hear someone say that, I'm going to turn them to Matthew 5, verse 39. Do not resist an evildoer, and ask, how is that Jesus not telling me 
to be a doormat. And even as I say that, it begins to bite. And not just bite in the sense that it's challenging. It, it does actually lead us into a place of being offended. It, it's not just that this is beyond what the Lord calls to us. It, it seems to be the opposite. It seems to us to be wrong. And frankly, if we're looking for a way out, Jesus doesn't help us with the examples he then gives. He starts with the most sort of basic and visceral of, of human injustice. Somebody physically assaulting you. And he says, uh, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Somebody punches you in the face. I mean, most of us, we, we want to we punch back. I mean, you think you're doing pretty well if, if you've managed to, to, to stop at that point. But he doesn't even just say, don't punch them back. He says, no, respond in grace. Turn the other cheek. You're not even allowed to try and stop them from doing it again. What's going on there? And then he widens the circle from just two individuals to now two individuals clashing in the context of legal injustice. Because the next example deliberately references the Old Testament law. And, and he says, uh, if anyone wants to sue you to take your coat or shirt, give your cloak as well. And in the Old Testament, you could be sued for your shirt or your cloak. If you put it up as surety for a debt, or if you hadn't and you, you'd run out of money, uh, it could be taken off you as payment for the debt, the money that you owed. But it was explicitly forbidden that your coat would be taken as well. Because the coat is all that is keeping the poor man warm. It is one of the basic necessities of life. So no matter how much money they owe you, no matter how desperate the situation, you cannot take their cloak. And so when Jesus says, give your cloak as well, he's saying, just pile injustice on injustice. Let them, let them take something which they're not allowed to. And it seems that the justice system is going awry. And then he widens the circle even further as he says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. And many of you will know that the context of this was in the Roman oppression of uh, Judea uh, and Israel. Because there was a custom whereby a Roman soldier could just press gang any old person he saw going along uh, about their own business and force them to carry all his gear or anything else he fancied for a mile. And in fact, actually, later on in the Gospels, we, we see an example of this when Jesus collapses on his way to the cross and the soldiers just go and grab some other poor bloke called Simon of Cyrene and make him carry the cross the rest of the way. And you better believe that all of Jesus' hearers were aware of what he was talking about there and they would have found it deeply offensive that the Romans were able to do that. It would have rankled. It was an injustice which didn't just add inconvenience and physical hardship and all of that. It also seemed to speak of systemic and institutional injustice. And Jesus says, even there, don't resist. In fact, even there, add grace in. Oh, you want me to take your stuff from mile? I'll take it for two. And there's something in us that goes, no. I mean, we just sang about dancing on injustice. What's happened to that? And that seems to be sharpened, actually, when you go to the headline verse, 
when Jesus seems to, to set aside an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because on one level, when he says an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, no, no, don't do that, he's doing the same as he's been doing up to this point. Because part of the Old Testament command, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was to establish the boundaries of justice. It comes up three times in the Old Testament law, and it's kind of one of the core judicial principles on which Israel was supposed to be governed, that that justice and punishment should be fair and equitable. That the punishment, to use a modern idiom, fits the crime. And so if you punch somebody in the face and you take out their eye, they can't just kill you in response. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, not life for eye, an arm for tooth. And so it establishes that principle of fairness and of equity in justice. As an aside, actually there's lots of evidence through the Old Testament that the main way in which this actually usually happens was through fines or some other forms of compensation. So it seems a little bit less violent than it might appear. But but the other part of that was not just limiting vengeance, it was also establishing justice. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, equity in the administration of justice, these are the things that protect the poor and the oppressed. I mean, you better believe that the rich and powerful don't really need a justice system to get justice when you punch them in the eye. They'll find a way to get back at you. They'll find a way to put things right if you rob them and so on and so forth. But the poor man, the the victims, the powerless in society, they're the ones who get lost, but who this principle says, no, they matter. Justice matters. What is done to them must be addressed. And Jesus is saying, no. What is going on? And I want to hit you with that offensiveness to what Jesus is saying. And I'm going to unpick parts of it in a moment. But I want to hit you with it because I think we cannot hear the challenge of this passage. We cannot be in a place where Jesus will transform our hearts and souls through what he's saying here until we have faced up to the offensiveness of it. Because I think sometimes we read passages like this and we won't admit to ourselves that we don't like them. And there's a kind of splinter in our mind and our soul that says, ooh, no, ooh, I don't like this. But it kind of festers away because we haven't examined it. So the first thing we need to say is actually to work out what Jesus is not saying. And the first thing that he is not saying is that any of these things are okay. He is not saying that it is not profoundly wrong to punch someone in the face, to perpetrate injustice through the law courts, or to have systemic and institutional injustices. In fact, quite the opposite. Did you spot the word that he uses to describe the sorts of people who do this stuff? Evil. That is an incredibly strong word. He calls them out and condemns them as evil. And if you if you want to, if you want to, yeah, yeah, he calls them evil. And if you want to look at the rest of Jesus' life, it is clear that he was more than willing to stand up in the face of, of injustice and try and establish the opposite. If you don't believe me, just go and read the gospel accounts of him clearing the moneylenders out of the temple. Or some of the things he said to the Pharisees about them uh, adding burdens on the people that they couldn't themselves keep. So this is not Jesus saying that's okay. Equally, 
it's not him actually setting aside the Old Testament law. And I know that because we're meant to read the Bible within the context. We're meant to read it with what's just become, come before ringing in our ears. And although it may have been a couple of weeks ago for us, it was only about 30 seconds or a couple of minutes ago that his original hearers heard him say, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of the, of the letter will pass from the law until everything's accomplished. So Jesus isn't trying to get rid of the law. Jesus is not contradicting it, because if, if he is, he's contradicting what he just said a few moments ago. And actually, this whole chunk, what we looked at last week, what we're looking at today, what we're going to look at in a couple of weeks' time, is all, if you like, worked examples of him showing us how we're meant to engage with the law. So he can't be saying, oh, I no longer believe in that. And, and so we, we have to ask, well, well, what is going on here? And the answer is that Jesus is calling us into a deeper and very challenging personal response. And this is not talking about the corporate. And there's actually a little, a little indicator of that in the original. There's a shift in the number, which you can see in pretty much every language apart from English. Uh, because in English, we have no distinction between you and you. But for, for most of this chapter, Jesus is preaching you. If we were reading a Texan translation of uh, Matthew 5, it said, y'all have heard it said, but I said y'all, and I'm sorry for the really bad accents, but, but you get the message. It, it was to all, but then suddenly in our little passage, the examples are all you, singular. And, and what Jesus is not saying is injustice and those things don't matter. He's not saying, stop going after the vision that we see in the Old Testament of let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. He's saying, I'm calling you to something a little bit different. And in fact, actually, it's part of our calling to be salt and light, which again is ringing in our eyes and our ears from earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, where we're meant to be transforming the world and making it a better place. But he is saying to you and to me on a personal and individual level something which we still find offensive and challenging. And one of the reasons I've gone down the line of, of explaining what he wasn't saying is that it stops us from sidestepping it. Because we can all come up with loads of examples of Jesus standing against injustice, trying to establish righteousness. And if if we don't go down what I've just done, we, we can then say, okay, well, well, clearly Jesus didn't mean be a doormat because he wasn't a doormat. He wasn't a doormat. He was always standing up for people. So um, that can't be what it means. It must be okay for me to just carry on as I want to carry on. And so we, we miss the, the, the punch of this passage. So what is going on? Well, Jesus is calling you and me, to live radically different lives because of who he is. So just think back to how this passage starts. 
and how all the little bits of Matthew 5 start. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus is not, contrary to popular understandings of the Sermon on the Mount, trying to teach some timeless ethical wisdom that is universally universally applicable across all people, as uh, relevant for a Muslim or an atheist as it is to you or me. No. Jesus is giving instructions for kingdom living to Jesus' people, to people who have been saved and rescued and redeemed by him to people who have committed their lives to him. And he says to you, to me, to us, you guys, this is how I want you to live. And he is saying to you and I, I want you to live in this way. And even as we hear that, we realize, actually, I need to rethink how I'm approaching this. Because where do we stand in the context of this passage? Well, yes, people do perpetrate wrong against us. But we also stand in the dock as the evildoers as well. We are guilty. And when we call for justice, we call for justice on ourselves. But what we receive is grace. What we receive is love. What we receive is forgiveness. And Jesus calls us to share what we have been given with those who perpetrate the same sinfulness and wrongdoing that we see in our own lives back against us. And we overflow out of the riches and the depths of the grace that he's shown to us. And we choose, rather than responding to injustice and violence against us as individuals with justice and vengeance and violence back, to respond with love. To respond with forgiveness. And I I think that's so important. We need to, to bring ourselves in the context of this passage to the foot of the cross. And and actually, it's at the foot of the cross that we see Jesus doing exactly what he tells us to do. Yes, when it came to other people. Yes, when it came to standing up for, for, for the world, he was bold and he was strong and he drove the moneylenders out to protect you. He would stand and he would be all those things. But to protect himself, he did the opposite. When he was uh, arrested by men with cudgels and weapons to take him off to be brutalized, tortured, and killed. What did he do? He healed the guy who got hurt in the melee. When he was brought before a show trial, rigged and perverted and twisted justice, what did he do? As a lamb to the slaughter, he was silent before his accusers. And when a brutal and repressive regime killed him, What did he do? He looked out at the individual people who were the agents of his death and he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he did it for you. He did it for me because I deserved to be on that cross. My sins mean that I am guilty and, friends, the same is true of every one of you. But I don't get the cross because Jesus went there instead. I don't get the cross because Jesus practiced what he preached here. 
I don't get the cross because of the glorious riches of his grace. And then he turns to me, and he turns to you as he turned to them long ago, and he says, I want you to do the same, even to the people who mistreat you. And I want you to do it because you love me. I don't think there's any other way in which we could possibly put this this passage into practice without going through the depths of the cross. I don't have the self-control to be punched in the face, much less the rest of it, and not do anything about it. I don't have the self-control to to love and forgive another person who behaves like that to me on their own account, but, but Jesus loves them. And so I can. And one of the the reasons why I chose this book uh, as an opening illustration was because it was one of the things that I loved in it was how Festo Kivengeri deeply, deeply learned that lesson. He he stood up, just FYI, injustice-wise, against uh, um, Idi Amin on an institutional level. The bishops of the Anglican Church personally delivered a letter of protest at Amin's rule and the archbishop didn't leave the president's palace alive, and Kivengeri fled. He was willing to stand up against injustice for everyone else, but for himself, not so much. And himself, he realized, well, I want to read you what he wrote. We love President Idi Amin. We owe him the debt of love, for he is one of those for whom Christ shed his precious blood. As long as he's still alive, he's still redeemable. Pray for him that in the end he may see a new way of life. Now, we owe him the debt of love. I mean, what a thing to say about your oppressor. But he doesn't say it because of some innate value and nobility to Idi Amin. No, he says it for he is one of those for whom Christ shed his precious blood. It's on Jesus' account that you're being asked to do something that otherwise just seems crazy and nuts. But Jesus has already done so much more for you and for me. And and I want to finish by by plunging a little bit more into trying to get our heads around the depths of the love that Jesus has shown to us. Because that is the key, I was going to say to unlocking the, the sort of righteousness, the sort of life that is talked about in this passage, but frankly, everything yeah. in the Christian life. Yeah. And, and I want to use an illustration that Jesus himself uses. It, it's a beautiful little parable he told of a servant who owed a king an almost unimaginably large sum, 10,000 talents. We'll come to that in a moment. And he can't pay, and he just comes in and he he throws himself on the mercy of the king and he says, forgive me, I can't pay, just can you forgive me the money? And the king says, yes, that's fine, you're forgiven, grace. And he sends him away. And then he walks out and he sees another servant who owed him a much smaller amount of money. Again, we'll come to that in a moment, 100 denarii. And he says, pay me. And the servant says, I can't, I can't, I can't. And he says, right, well, I'm going to have you thrown into prison. And uh, things don't turn out well for him. But... But it's a beautiful little parable, which I think we often miss the guts of because the, the two sums of money are basically meaningless uh, words and numbers to us. But in them, Jesus is telling us something about the, the gulf between what we've been forgiven and what we're asked to forgive. And what we're asked to forgive is not nothing. 
If you, if you know, people sometimes say about that parable, 100 denarii, it was just a few pence. And, and that's quite dismissive of the hurts and the wrongs that are done to us. But, but actually it's not. As you see in some other stories in the Gospels, actually, one denarius was the going rate for one day's work in ancient Israel. So 100 denarius is 100 days' pay. Let's update that to, to this day at kind of medium wages. 10 grand? Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody owed me 10 grand, I'd notice it. And I would struggle to forgive that debt. So, so what is Jesus saying there? Well, the answer lies in the other number, the amount that the first servant is forgiven. And 10,000 is the biggest number that you can say with just one word in Greek. And the talent is the biggest unit of currency that they had in the ancient world, or actually in any society I've come across. And it was an almost unimaginably large sum of money. A couple of generations before Jesus was born, there was uh, a, a famously wealthy and miserly Roman aristocrat called Crassus. And he was rumoured to be the wealthiest man in the Roman Empire, in the whole world. And he was pretty tight with his money. And uh, I read somewhere that there were whispers flying around Rome that Crassus was worth perhaps as much as 8,000 talents. Not 10,000, though. I mean, because that's nuts. Not even the richest man in the world got to that kind of wealth. That's the kind of wealth that, that could buy you kingdoms and empires. That's gold beyond the wit of human thought. That's the sort of money that even Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk can only dream of. <laughs> and that, my friends, is what Jesus has forgiven you. And all the things that have been done against you, the, the guy who strikes you in the face, the, the, the adversary who sues you unjustly, even more kind of wide-scale systemic injustices, that the person who's the face of them, what, what they've done to you, it matters. If it's 10 grand, you'd notice it. I'd struggle to forgive a debt of 10 grand. But if you gave me a couple of trillion pounds, I reckon I'd manage. <laughs> but it's only then, it's only when we know the vastness of the richness of the grace of God in forgiving you and I, that we could possibly begin to stumble our way towards what Jesus is calling us to do here. So I want to hit you with grace, but then follow that grace up quickly with this extraordinary challenge. And I want us to move into ministry now. I want to ask you actually all to stand. And as you do, I want you to maybe close your eyes and I want you to think of where are you, where have you experienced injustice? What does this actually look like in your life? And I'm guessing for most of us, you don't have to look very far. And I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to, to come and to fill even our thoughts and these places. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. I was going to 
pray that we'd, we'd forgive those people. But before that, actually, I just feel like the Lord is saying, pray that, <coughs> that I would unleash my love for those people in their hearts. And so I want to pray, come Holy Spirit. And if you can echo that in, in your heart, pray, Lord, make me love this person. If you can't echo that, pray, Lord, make me want to love this person. If you can't pray that, pray, make me want to want to love this person. But Lord, come. May you pour your love, your broken heart, your longing for the salvation and blessing of this evil doer into the hearts of each person here. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.